Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor, and this week I've been joined by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, Hattie Williams, Reporter, and Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. Let's start this week with our cover story. We've had the leaders of the three major political parties writing exclusively for the Church Times on why they think international development and the UK's aid budget remains critically important. Um, Ed, do you want to tell us a bit more about how this came about? Yes, uh, Christian Aid got in touch saying that they were in touch with the offices of each of the party leaders of of the three major parties um, about writing something on international aid. Obviously, they're very busy in election mode at the moment, but each of the leaders seems to have seen this as an important issue to set out their stalls on. And um, yeah, we were really pleased that um, we were seen as a good place to do that. So we've given a lot of coverage this week on the front page and over two of our comment pages um, I think they're very powerful interventions by each of the party leaders. Um, some differences of emphasis, but they're all united in saying that our moral role as a provider of international aid is extremely important um, and it ties in with the national interest and the two aren't mutually exclusive. Of course, um, the UK is bound by law at the moment to spend 0.7% of its national income on its international development budget. There was some speculation earlier after the election campaign began that Theresa May and the Conservatives would perhaps drop this commitment in their manifesto. But she writes that her, if she forms the next government, the 0.7% commitment will continue. She does. Um, and she links this to the uh, national interest, not just to the moral case. She writes, it is in Britain's clear national interest to act before problems overseas grow and threaten us here at home. Disease, disasters, conflicts and diseases do not pay attention to national borders. Then she says that is why she is committed to the 0.7%. I think it's quite interesting messaging there that she's saying it's in, it's in our national interest to do this. It's not simply what some on the right might call kind of bleeding heart liberalism. And I think crucially she's saying it's not a waste of money because it's preventing disasters and conflicts and diseases that could come our way if we don't act now. So it's, it's a preventative strategy. She also says that um, UK aid um, is a badge of hope at the moment anyway. Um, So she points to a lot of um, projects where this money has been directed, um, including Syria, um, Afghanistan, fighting malaria. Um, So she's obviously quite proud of what we do already. And it's it's also, I think, as well as prevention, trying to continue that legacy. I think that's right. And I think there's a patriotic theme comes through towards the end of her the piece the Prime Minister's written for us, that this is a record that we as the UK can be proud of and one of one which as a country we must build on in the future. So, And what about um, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party? Does he go down the line of a kind of, is it a national interest or does he state the moral case more strongly? Uh, he, he definitely looks to state the moral case and, and he says there's, there's no, sorry, he says there's no conflict between our domestic policy interests and providing overseas aid. I mean, he's the, tone of Jeremy Corbyn's piece is, is rather more combative and slightly in more electioneering mode. He, he, go, he directly attacks the Conservatives quite early on in his piece, saying, sadly, there are those in the Conservative Party, not nearly the International Development Secretary, for whom international development seems to invoke some kind of moral terror, balking at the notion of giving to the most needy. I'm sure that's something the Conservatives would dispute, and they'd say, well, we are committed to the 0.7 target. We are committed to giving to the most needy. Um, Jeremy Corbyn also talks about the thousands of churchgoers organising events and fundraisers in Christian Aid Week. It's just worth saying that these pieces have coincided with Christian Aid Week, which has taken place this week 
It's just interesting as well that he um, concludes his piece, Jeremy Corbyn, saying, we have to ask ourselves what kind of country do we want to be? One that is insular, cynical and dominated by corporate greed or one that is committed to building positive relationships and improving the lot of the world's least fortunate? Which again, I guess, would kind of tie into the theme of some of their broader election campaign, which is all about casting Labour as the chance to... um, shape a different kind of society post-Brexit to the offer that uh, Theresa May and the Conservatives are proposing. Tim Farron also talks about the moral issue of uh, international aid. Um, And obviously, as an evangelical Christian himself, he um, specifically talks about the Christian community. And he says, as Christians, we recognise that this gut reaction, that is to not ignore the injustice of a world of such inequality and poverty... This gut reaction comes from more than just our own thoughts and feelings. It also comes from a sense of being called to love our neighbour, wherever they may be, whether in the next door flat or on the other side of the world. It's interesting here, clearly an example where Tim Farron's Christian faith very much aligned with the Liberal Democrats' own kind of party ethos here, um, in contrast perhaps to some other places in the election campaign where he's had to fend off some awkward questioning about his views on things like homosexuality and also this week um, abortion after a quite an old interview surfaced in which he suggested he thought it was wrong whereas today now he insists like his party he's very much pro-choice. I thought it was interesting the language he used in his piece um, particularly towards the end saying we must always be relational remembering that behind the statistics are people and he calls them our brothers and sisters who we may never meet but are still called to love and I think he, he's really using a sort of more theological language to talk about this and I think it's the piece that most says that this is a moral issue it's not really about self-interest it, it might be those things but primarily it's it's a moral issue it's interesting as well that he says actually this is a question um, of much more than just how much money we spend so he says um, we must not think that simply committing to funding means that our responsibility towards those in poverty has been discharged The way that we respond to those in need goes beyond this. It's how we treat people. It's in welcoming refugees and it's in being prepared to work together with other nations. So it's clearly making the case that even with keeping the 0.7% commitment, we can't pat ourselves on the back and think job well done, he would say. There's a lot more the UK as as a country needs to do to discharge its moral duty towards the poorest in the world. I think the publication of these pieces which commit um, these parties to maintaining the 0.7% commitment could also be seen as the failure of a certain section of the mainstream press to um, get rid of that target. And so the government's actually been under sustained pressure um, from newspapers, including the Daily Mail, but to an extent other papers as well, to scrap this target. And it's quite interesting that those attempts which were um, quite persistent over recent months seem to have failed. And actually Corbyn refers directly to those headlines. He, he calls them sensationalist and downright immoral newspaper headlines. This perhaps could also be seen as a, a success for Christian Aid. Uh, we spoke to Joe Ware from Christian Aid back in episode three of this podcast where he was sketching out his case for why Anglicans and, and church people more in general should be joining the fight to defend the aid budget against these uh, newspaper attacks. Madeleine, you went to a press conference earlier this week uh, by the team of scholars who've been looking into the Jordanian-led books. I guess the key question we need to answer is, are they a hoax? I think the answer from the scholars um, would be no. Um, They seem quite convinced that these books, or at least some of them, are of ancient origin. Um, But this is only one panel of scholars, and there remain um, others uh, who've very much dismissed this discovery, um, who believe that they're forgeries. Um, 
what this panel have undertaken um, is uh, an analysis of the metal that these books are made of. Um, and what they talked about at the press conference was evidence which they think is convincing um, that the books are um, extremely old and uh, very unlikely to be modern. Just want to give us a bit of background here. What exactly are these lead books? Where were they found? What do they, what do they show? So they're quite numerous and more of them are appearing all the time. But this sort of set were discovered in Jordan in, in 2011. They're small lead books um, inscribed with symbols um, and letters from different alphabets. Um, which are being analysed um, because some people believe that they um, date from the Second Temple period um, and can tell us about Judaism and early Christianity. And there's some suggestion as well that some of these images or words might contain some kind of code, is that right? Yes, so Dr Margaret Barker, who's um, an independent scholar, uh, was asked by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Williams, to study these books and she presented some of her working on Tuesday, which I have to say was fascinating. Um, she showed how she has interpreted just one page of one book, um, which involves looking for symmetry across the letters. Um, and she provided quite a convincing e example of how, um, by using this symmetry, she'd managed to interpret the script um, and show what she believes to be is references to um, passages in the Bible. Um, including passages from Isaiah and from Revelation um, and from writings of John. So could this be really significant for how people interpret the Bible in the future? So I asked her what the significance for Christians was um, and she believes that the significance is that Christians will no longer be able to think that the founders of the Christian faith were humble fishermen in Galilee. Um, they were instead learned heirs of the temporal tradition. Um, so what she argues is that Christianity emerged um, from, um, from scholars, um, from priests, and so a sort of a very different understanding of perhaps of the origins of the Christian faith. And she said to me that she very much hopes that this will result in people going back to the Bible. I think she feels that um, perhaps Christians today don't study their Bibles enough, and she hopes that this might prompt them to do so. And what about our quotes of the week, Madeline? So mine comes from Norma Ralph. Um, he was baptised at the age of 82 um, this weekend in Salisbury. And she said, I should have done it a long time ago, but never got round to it. And as someone who got baptised in their 30s, um, that really resonated with me. <laughs> <laughs> My quote this week comes from the leader column, actually. Um, there's a section which is discussing the um, consecration, the irregular consecration of Jonathan Pryke in, in Jesmond. Um, and the leader points out that he only plans, he plans to spend just 20% of his time now as a bishop. Um, having read what Bishop Pryke thinks of the C of E, we wonder what keeps him in it, even for 80% of his time. Patty? Mine is uh, from an extract from Simon Jenkins' new book on uh, the wonderful ways in which uh, Christians express their beliefs. And on the question of whether animals go to heaven, he says, I tried to find out whether any of the great theologians actually kept a pet, hoping against hope to discover that the prim John Calvin kept a raucous red-bottomed baboon. But the Google search kept getting distracted by words such as dogma, catechism, and even rabbi. Ed. 
My quote of the week comes from our new back page columnist, Malcolm Geit, who'll be known for, to many of our readers, a poet and priest in the Diocese of Ely and a, a chaplain at Girton College, Cambridge. He was interviewed on episode, our first ever episode of the podcast, actually, about his new book on, on Coleridge. Um, he is um, succeeding the um, legendary Ronald Blythe, who, who many will know has, has now stood down from doing his column after many years. And we're very grateful to the warm wishes that, that have been sent to Dr Blythe um, via our office. Um, so Malcolm Guide's now on, on the back page each week. I'll, I'll just quote the first line and then leave readers to enjoy the rest of the column. It starts, I once glimpsed eternity in Huntingdon. Almost half of the British adult population now identifies as no religion, as survey suggests. I spoke to Professor Stephen Bullivant, Director of the Benedict XVI Centre for Religion and Society at St Mary's University Twickenham, about his research into this population. You obviously talk about um, potentially kind of Anglican affiliation having stabilised or steadied. Um, how confident are you about that? Could you kind of expand a bit on that? Is that just a hunch or do you think there's sort of quite significant evidence for that? Well, I mean, over the past three years, uh, we've had three years of data, 2005, 2004, 2003, where the Anglican church population has, I mean, slightly grown, but, I mean, a, a very small and, pro you know, probably not significant growth, but certainly held steady at around this kind of 17, 18%. And three years isn't very long to be drawing big conclusions, but... Given the previous 20, 30 years, which has been almost year-on-year -year decline, three years at least looks promising. Um, but no, I mean, I wouldn't want to draw any sort of grand claims on it. And in fact, in the report, it hedges it very, you know, carefully. Um, but certainly it's, it's, it looks it looks like it's stabilised or at least stabilising. I think I saw that you'd said elsewhere that perhaps it had shed as much as it was going to shed. So in a sense, sort of everybody it was going to um, no longer or um, kind of affiliate had now done so. And so you were kind of left with quite a stable core. Um, would you be able to um, kind of expand on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, basically, I think one of the big trends that we see over the, you know, since the early 80s, which is when the British Social Attitude Survey began, is I think what we've really lost, and I think the, the main sort of um, takeaway from the report is CV as the default setting of British social life, cultural life, has, has really dissipated. So I think in the past, people would identify as Church of England unless they had a particular reason not to if they were brought up Catholic or Methodist or, or Muslim or, or Jewish um, or if they'd taken a kind of a conscious decision to step out of religion. Now that's gone. I think that the people who are still ticking one of the Christian categories aren't necessarily practicing but they at least they're at they at least know why they're ticking it, I think. I mean, there's at least a sort of a, a committed fellow travellerness. Um, so as the, the default setting of the country has really shifted to no religion, and, and if you like, that's the centre of gravity, so that a large proportion of people brought up in one of the Christian denominations gravitate towards no religion, and the vast majority of people brought up in no religion stay there, 
it makes sense that the people who are ticking anything other than that, really, are doing so for something at least slightly more than, well, that's that's what you do. That's the kind of the default. So does it actually matter that people are no longer saying, thinking of uh, sort of the C of E as a default setting, um, or perhaps if we're just left with people who are sort of committed and practicing, that's fine. Um, I, I know um, you're not an Anglican yourself, but do you think it's still something that the C of E should be concerned about losing that kind of nominal commitment? Um, it's hard. I mean, it's one of those ones that you can always play both ways. On the one hand, I think, you know, the you know Christianity isn't, uh, you know, a sort of a loose cultural... Um, commitment. It's a radical commitment to follow Christ and to take up one's cross um, even unto death. Now, any Christian group benefits from this kind of wider penumbra of goodwill and affiliation beyond the walls of the people who actually practice and take it very seriously. And even just looking at the kind of the way this report how is being talked about and reported, obviously this factors into all sorts of political questions around faith schools, around the establishment of the church, around the place of the Church of England within within society. So from that respect, the fewer people who identify as C V and have a Kind of a kind of a cultural goodwill and attachment to it isn't isn't something to celebrate. On the other hand, I think the the fact that the people who are left are more committed to not just to the identity but often to the practice, including I think you know if you're still going to church as a twenty year old in twenty seventeen um, every Sunday, then a you've been swimming against the tide in your own families and in your own school for years, you're there for a reason, and the other 20-year-olds who meet on the Sunday are also there for a reason. And if they become your kind of peer group, and we see the chapter, then you start to sort of see revivals and a sort of intensification. Is your sense that perhaps if we're left with this quite um, committed penumbra, um that actually that will become more sticky, so their children will be more likely to remain um, Christian? Um, or is there sort of evidence that even children that go up, grow up in um, sort of committed practising Christian homes, um, majority of those sort of also leave over time? Well, certainly the statistics, the analysis based on the path, now obviously a lot of the, you know, when we talk about those 26 people brought up, Christian who now identify as non. Obviously, you know, in in many cases, they're people who've left 30, 40 years ago. The baby boom generation was a real watershed here. Um, I would lay money on the fact that Catholic retention and, and all Christian denomination retention will start to rise precisely because the people who are left to still bring up their children as Catholic or C of E or Methodists or Baptists will sort of almost of necessity be the more committed ones because, you know, they're the ones kind of who are left. 
Um, and I, I think we're beginning to see this. Um, it's you know it doesn't show up against the big picture um, statistics and won't for many decades. But for example, you know within Christian Catholic circles rather, you know that I spend a lot of time with, with young people. Vacations are on the rise again from, you know, kind of almost none to some. There's young Catholic, uh, you know, couples getting married and being very keen to explore what the church teaches about marriage and sexuality, to take that very seriously. And I think, I mean, as I mentioned before, I think this is actually a, a side effect from the sexualization that what we see is that the people who are left tend to be the more committed ones. The people they meet there are in the same boat, and they then become the norm for each other, and encourage each other, and and then want to go out and they take it seriously and be um, evangelised. It, it's very easy to romanticise this kind of thing, and you know to think back to the early church and and how wonderful things were. And of course that's true, but you know the early church were you know were quite happy when they suddenly got kind of establishment status and uh, you know stopped being persecuted and and you know could had infrastructure and things like that. But certainly in terms of you know kind of a biblical Christianity of serious discipleship, as I said before, it's you know it's not. It's not about creating cultural Christians who tick a box and that's about it. It's about creating serious disciples. And that's easier to do, I think, um, although you end up doing it probably with, with smaller, more committed numbers, um, as a counterculture. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.